The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Well, a very good morning to you all. Um, welcome to the show, Squawbox. We are live, of course, in the CNBC International Headquarters in London. <laughs> I think that's what it's called. Uh, and Karen, of course, is at VivaTech in Paris. So these are your headlines. US inflation eases to its lowest level in two years, raising expectations for a Fed pause later today. But what does a pause mean? I think a lot of people need to have a look at that. Uh, This after a streak of 10 rate hikes since last March. Uh, The S&P 500 and the Nasdaq hitting fresh 13-month highs, whilst US Treasury yields climb on the back of investor optimism for an end to the hiking cycle. Short-term guilt yields rise above levels not seen since the infamous UK mini-budget. After stronger-than-expected employment data, this is as BOE Governor Andrew Bailey acknowledges that inflation is more stubborn than initially forecast. We will have to use monetary policy to bring it back, frankly. Um, and then the question, of course, is, is, is how much? We've got some ideas on what the underlying drives are. I mean, we still think the rate of inflation is going to come down, but it's taking a lot longer than we expected. U.S. chipmaker AMD makes a play for a greater share of the AI market, launching a new semiconductor, while rival NVIDIA closes with a $1 trillion valuation for the first time, the seventh U.S. company to do so. Look at that, up 180% this year. And AI is a dominant theme here at VivaTech in Paris, where billionaire Elon Musk is set to attend as President Emmanuel Macron makes his annual pitch to bring tech investment to France. We've got a whole lineup of guests for you, including the GitHub CEO that is coming away at 8.30 CET. Good morning, everybody. Once again, thanks so much for joining us here on Squawk Box. Well, let's get straight to it. This is the core, the meat and potatoes of the show. Consumer price inflation in the United States easing to its lowest level in more than two years in the month of May, rising 4% compared to a year earlier. Now, guys, I know 4% back in the olden days does sound like a lot, but it is a significant step down from the 4.9% jump in April. Core inflation, which of course trips out food and energy prices, rather volatile, rose 0.4% last month in line with April's increase. So breaking it all down for you, category by category, energy costs, those fell the most from the previous month, while food and shelter prices remained rather sticky. Well, the CPI reading all comes ahead of the all-important Federal Reserve policy decision today. According to the latest CNBC Fed survey, the Fed might be at the end of its hiking cycle, with 91% of market participants expecting the central bank to pause today 
63% anticipating that pause to continue into July. Well, let's take a look at how the US markets reacted to all of this. Well, it was a whole pile of green on the screen. Do keep in mind, though, that, um, you know, a lot of people were expecting the US inflation to not have accelerated. So, you know, it's not like we saw a mega rally, but still, I'll take this kind of rally over, over, over a drop. The Dow up by about half a percent, the S&P 500 even more, the Nasdaq up by eight tenths of a percent. This particular index has been on a tear this year, up nearly 30% year to date. Of course, all the big names, you know, like Apple, Nvidia, Meta, definitely giving a massive pile of wind under the wings of the NASDAQ. And a lot of that has been AI driven. More on that one later. The S&P is up about 15%, not quite, but almost 15% year to date as well. So doing really, really well there. Well, let's take a look at treasuries as well. Uh, interesting picture here, what's going on with the, uh, with the, with the treasury market. Uh, given the fact that we did actually see uh, a brief decline in yields after that CPI, and that is to be expected, but then they actually ticked back up again, settling around for the two-year 4.649%, for the 10-year sitting at 3.8%. Uh, the two-year, by the way, is still still above the five-year, the 10-year, the 20-year, and the 30-year. Uh, so, uh, you know, go figure as to what that's telling us. But, you know, we've been reading all kinds of market signals and a lot of those signals have not yet eventuated. Let's take a look at the dollar crosses for you. Uh, sterling dollar, which, of course, got a kick up into the 26s, 126 yesterday after the strong wage data and a drop in the jobless rate. Euro dollar dropped below 108 in overnight trade. In other words, dollar strength, which is really interesting, isn't it? So even though with the lower inflation number, suggesting that the Fed does have that wiggle room to pause later on, Today, we saw some strength in dollar. Uh, dollar yen also kicked up into the 140s. Look at that, got the BOJ later on in this week, although no one's expecting Mr. Ueda to do anything but sit on his hands once again. So we've still got that really big uh, for differential. And uh, dollar yuan there behind me, 7.16. We're watching what's happening with China in light of the fact that, yes, they did cut short-term interest rates yesterday, not as much as the market would have liked. But there is some chatter now that uh, we might get a, a, a big and broad stimulus package out of China because they really do need to uh, put a little bit of life back into areas such as real estate without, of course, causing more problems with debt. You wouldn't want to be a policymaker, would you? Anyway, let's take a look at what's going on with WTI. Uh, we saw a big, big gain in oil prices overnight. I think part of that would have been because of the chatter about the stimulus package out of China, world's biggest importer of, uh, of energy and also the world's second largest economy. You do the math, they, they have to uh, gobble up an awful lot of crude. WTI crude still below the 70 mark though, uh, but did get a kick up in overnight trade, I think to the tune of about 3.4%. Uh, my uh, little birdies do tell me. Brent crude sitting at 74.46 and of course that's still sitting there with a positive bias. Asian markets. Well, the Nikkei 225 just continues its tear. 33,564. So we're at a 33-year high here, folks. But I remember back in 1989, and I know Steve keenly remembers 1989, December 1989, when it was at the bubble high. What was it? Just below 39,000 perhaps? So we're not back at the bubble high, but still um, with a gain of 1.6% continuing there and also being helped by a weaker yen. It's doing very, very well this year. The outperformer by far in the Asian markets. Uh, Hang Seng just can't get out of its own way. Uh, the, the Shanghai Composite, marginally positive, not particularly, uh, you know, enthused by the idea of more stimulus. I think maybe they're concerned. How do you just walk that line, right? You know, between 
causing more debt problems but also stimulating the economy. It's an incredibly difficult one. The Australian market is up by three-tenths of one percent. U.S. futures, big Fed day, guys. U.S. futures uh, are sitting mixed. Bit of caution there. Um, not sure why there's a whole pile of caution. I think a lot of people feel that that CPI number, Steve, kind of sealed the deal for, uh, for the pause, but maybe because it's all factored in now. Uh, you know, I thought the CPI number was stunningly nuanced. I'm not buying the headline, oh my goodness me, lowest since 2021 spring. It's all over as well. But don't take my word for it. Let's speak to an expert on this as well. Uh, Lakshman Achitan joins us, who is co-founder of Economic Cycle Research Institute. Uh, and you are an expert yes. on this because uh, you were telling me off camera, your USP is cycles on inflation and on growth as well. So. Yes. Really basic question to start off with. Sure. What did you make of the inflation data? Oh, just what you said. Uh, you know, okay, oh, we'll there's not... Move on, on, on there. But um, um, I think that it, it's... We're, look, we're not out of the woods. It's mm -hmm. obviously cycling down. The volatile stuff, the energy, the oil, are going to knock down uh, headline CPI. Um, but if you look under the hood, there's always something... Uh, to slow you down. And here, when you look at uh, services, core services, and that's where Powell mm -hmm. has pointed everyone very clearly, um, there's a little bit of a problem. It's sticky. And more, this is all coincident data. This is like just in your rear view mirror. You're just looking behind the car. Um, looking forward, forward, underlying inflation pressures. Where is inflation headed? That's the very interesting thing. The answer is it's still heading down but it's very, very sticky. Our forward-looking future inflation gauge has been going sideways now for half a year. That's really speaking to the stickiness uh, of inflation. It's gonna be around wages, and just to make it difficult, core goods inflation stopped falling. Let's go into the detail. This is what our viewers expect us to yeah. so We'll go into the weeds on this one as well. Again, this is like the be most beautiful echo chamber. I agree with you. Oh, uh, there because, we go. I mean, looking at the data, we were told for, for years, don't look at the headline CPI, mm. look at the core, because yeah. we've got to strip out those sure. useless things in your life like energy and food. <laughs> so, okay, so we've done what the central okay. banks have told us to do. We've looked at core. And unfortunately, when you look under the hood at core, it ain't so pretty. So yeah. let's go through the core figures as sure. well. Core is 5.3%, yep. well above the yep. headline figure, yep. albeit down 0.2 uh, percentage points uh, on the last figure as well. But when you look at core services, which you were pointing mm -hmm. us to, uh, shelter, which is a mere 40% of core, rose 0.6%, ladies and gentlemen. That was an increase from the 0.4 the previous month as well. So core shelter, the biggest component, is rallying hard as well. Year-on-year -year basis up 8% mm -hmm. as well. Then you look at uh, other areas as well, uh, and you see, actually, this isn't a story of um, disinflation across the board. No, not at all. And there's and, and if you go beyond shelter, there's some uh, uh, wage stuff in there. There's the Atlantic Wage Tracker sitting around 6% uh, growth. Those are very hot numbers for a, a Fed chair who has said, Oh, maybe we'll get a forehandle on the unemployment rate. Where that's where we're headed. These this, these are not simpatico. Yeah. Um, Karen in Paris has a question for you, actually. Yeah. 
Yeah, I just want to pick up on the wages growth story because what we've seen is that wages are growing in pretty much all sectors. But one of the missing links here now is productivity. And as you can see, I'm at a tech conference and one of the, the big angles here is AI. And a lot of CEOs are now thinking that AI, generative AI in particular, can actually bolster productivity, which could be fairly dramatic for the profile of profits for a lot of corporates from here and also how the Fed approaches the whole wages angle. Just give us a sense as to whether you think wages will be impacted by generative AI now. Uh, yes, but uh, not now. Uh, so there's the structural issues uh, that we and the opportunities with generative AI. And we may be getting some of that in the short term, um, but not enough for the entire economy's productivity problem. Uh, the weakness in productivity is actually off the charts. Uh, it's weak in manufacturing. It's extremely weak in construction, which means you almost need two construction workers to get the same job done that one would have done a couple of decades ago. That's how bad it is. Uh, and then even in services, where you typically will have some decent productivity growth, it's quite, quite weak. So all of that's actually, in the short cyclical term, inflationary. It's a support on inflation even though the generative AI is definitely a positive structurally longer term. So it's kind of like, uh, which way do you want to look at it and how long do you want to wait? Yeah, indeed, the tightness in the labor market is such a big issue, right? And um, one of the problems is that you've had quite quitting. Uh, we've got employers still trying to work out how the hybrid model works, forcing some of the, the workers to come back into the office. But as you point out, we're not going to get massive change on this angle, which is still why we still have a fairly uh, huge amount of openings, job openings that are posted on a month-by-month -month basis. What sort of numbers do you think we can get, though, because of the demand drop and the, the tightening of monetary policy? How swiftly do you think that labor market pressure is now starting to turn around? This is the key question. I think, I think we are headed into a hard landing on growth, except for jobs. We're, we're in this backdraft of the drama around COVID. We've had structural shifts uh, in the labor market. A huge hunk of supply was pulled out. Uh, and therefore, you have this, what we would call labor hoarding. Uh, it was so hard to hire people, even though demand coming in the door is softening so fast, I'm very reticent as a manager to let people go. That's labor hoarding. So even though you'll see job openings and those numbers you cited rising, you're seeing one thing now I think that's consistent with the uh, weakening economy. You're seeing the quits, the, the willingness for someone to quit a job is dropping quite fast and managers, I think, with probably too many people uh, employed right now for the, amount, the way they see their demand going, they're adjusting to it not by letting people go, but by reducing the work week. And that's what we've started to see. In inflationary times, you see strange things with jobs. Um, back in the 70s, uh, we had a recession that began uh, in 73, but it was the nine months inside of the recession before the first jobs number went negative. Mm. I'm not saying it's exactly like that. It's a very different world. But that type of mentality, I think, is at work. I mean, on top of the, the labor hoarding, there's also those situations that you often hear about now where people who were emboldened to quit in the middle of the pandemic are now like, please, sir, could I have my job back? Yes. Yeah? yeah. And those jobs aren't always Maybe there. I work from home for six days yeah. a week and a five day week. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Bit of power going back to the managers. Yes. But I'm wondering whether, with regards to inflation, whether there's a paradigm shift going on. Because we always have recency bias. You know, we're so used to now a very high inflationary world. But in the 20 years or so going into the pandemic, I think core goods prices on average were about zero. You yeah. know, globalisation yes. was keeping prices down. China was keeping prices down. It's no longer really the factory floor it used to be. Um, you know, wages were really stagnant in a lot of a lot of developed mm -hmm. countries for a really, really long time. There's all kinds of reasons why we didn't see a lot of inflation going into the pandemic. But now I wonder whether, you know, this idea of getting back to a two handle on inflation, have we fundamentally shifted higher? Maybe it should be maybe a band of three to four percent that we should be targeting, not this magical two number that everyone from, you know, the, yeah. the, the, the ECB, the BOJ, the Fed, everybody else is targeting. Absolutely. Um, when you go back and think about the 70s, which is not a perfect fit for now. It's just something to think about because it was the last time we had this inflationary backdrop like this. People, all of us, uh, just like you say, uh, would be like, hey, wait a minute, you know, I'm getting more wage increases and this and that. I'm not, I'm okay with this. I can kind of let it go. I'm not that freaked out by the higher uh, nominal prices because I'm getting higher nominal wages. It was only in the second part of the latter part of the 70s that people got so upset they really wanted to fight inflation, which gave the Fed chair the ability to really fight it. Powell has said he does not want to be Arthur Burns. He wants to be um, uh, Volcker. Uh, and that is why I think he is going to say he's going to talk tough. Uh, I don't want to let the inflation target rise at all. I'm going to fight that because if you don't, what you see in the 70s is uh, higher lows in the inflation mm -hmm. cycle as it starts to become trouble over the decade to the point where a very, very nasty recession was required. I think he's trying to thread the needle here and give us uh, a mildish recession uh, as opposed to something more severe. We'll see how that works. The, the immaculate disinflation is difficult. The immaculate disinflation. <laughs> I love it. Like irrational exuberance. Immaculate disinflation. Um, there was that um, piece by the Fed whisperer, Nick um, Morales, mm -hmm. in um, the Wall Street Journal, who really sort of put his finger on the pulse saying, you know, it's a really tough job for Powell right now. I mean, it's always tough for a central banker, but particularly right now, because he's trying to walk that line between keeping the lid on inflation, stuffing the genie back into the bottle, but also, um, you know, what, what if there's a credit crunch? I mean, there already is, to mm -hmm. a certain degree, a credit crunch. Mm -hmm. A lot of money is dried up, very difficult to, uh, to get a loan, whether, you know, if you're a VC or a PE or even just a small business. Um, and that would, of course, require the spigots to be opened. What do you think is going to be the outcome of that dilemma? A credit crunch. We're in it. Uh, it's part and parcel of cycle slowdowns, even hard landings. Credit crunches are typically in the vicinity. Um, and when something breaks, like the regional banks, we're going to put a Band-Aid or duct tape on it and, and try to hold it together while we continue on our path of higher for longer. Again, this other thing that's happened over the last few years is that the Fed has given up on forecasting. They've said, we're just going to look at the actual data. That was a couple of years ago. And that is a difficult thing if your tool is interest rates, right, which work with long and variable lags. And so here we have a cycle that is cycling down, and we can debate that, but let's just stipulate it for a second, while all the banks are tightening. 
And so that's hitting the brakes when you're already slowing. You're going to get hard landings. The one piece of good news, in a weird way, okay, is that while the U.S., I think, is higher for longer, the rest of the world, and this is to the U.K. or to the Eurozone or even Japan, or even China, all those forward inflation indicators are cycling down hard. So whether they know it or not, there's openings there for stimulus. You were in the lead-in talking about China getting ready to do it, to do it again, right? And they will. Um, so much more to discuss, but we've got to <laughs> say goodbye. But Thank look, you. Um, we've, we've learned a lot and we've covered a lot. So look, stay in touch and yes. uh, safe home. Um, when, are you, when are you off back to the States? Back on Friday. Uh, enjoying <laughs> oh, this beautiful, yes. typical English weather. Yes, <laughs> really I typical. It. I mean, in fact, most of our international audience wouldn't recognize London at the moment. It's, it's like a proper summer, apparently. Uh, Lakshman, nice to see you, sir. Nice uh, Lakshman uh, Achitan, who is co-founder Economic Cycle Research Institute. Well, as you were mentioning about China. Yeah, absolutely. So the central bank indeed is expected to... Um Excuse me, I'm just going to just, uh, I was going, going backwards there. China's central bank is expected to cut its medium-term policy rate tomorrow for the first time since August. That's according to a Reuters poll. The forecast comes after the PBOC announced a cut to the key short-term policy rate yesterday. We're all over that. Uh, fueling expectations of further easing as the country's economic recovery disappoints. Well, short-term gilt yields... Those have risen sharply after higher-than-expected wage data yesterday has fueled expectations that the Bank of England will have to pursue more contractionary monetary policy to tackle price pressures. The yield on two-year gilt hit its highest level since the financial crisis in 2008, higher than in the days after Kwasi Kwarteng's uh, so-called mini-budget last September. Well, staying with the UK, the Bank of England Governor Andrew Bailey says that inflation is coming down more slowly than the central bank expected, saying persistently high food prices, don't we know it, and the country's tight labour market are driving price pressures. Bailey told the House of Lords Economic Affairs Committee that falling labour supply is a key obstacle to meeting the central bank's inflation target. We've got a very tight labour market in this country. We've, we've had a fall in the supply of labour. Um, uh, which is showing signs of recovering, but very slowly, frankly. One of the things that firms pretty much universally say to me, and have been saying to me for a while, is that they find it so hard to recruit labour in the current market that they are not going to release labour. There's, there's labour hoarding going on. Um, that They'll adjust hours if they need to, but they will be very reluctant to... Uh, to, to, yeah, to make, make people redundant, effectively. Uh, hang on, just checking. No, I haven't upset anyone yet. What's that? Try to. Yeah, OK. Uh, we're not allowed to mention Brexit. Nothing to do with Brexit. Did you get slapped yesterday for... Uh I hope so. Getting on your soapbox. I hope so. How many boxes kind have of a, you got? It's kind of our job to upset someone, <laughs> or not, certainly to put a few contentious ideas out there. I believe that is the dynamic and unique nature of Scorebox Europe. Maybe, is it good cop, bad cop? So you're allowed to upset people, I've got to placate them? I'm always the bad cop, always. Mm. Um, you, you, absolutely, you, you can placate all you like. Placate away. No, no, we're not allowed to mention nothing. The tight labour market is nothing to do with Brexit, everybody, OK? Because Brexiteers get really annoyed with me when I say that. Not that I'm not a Brexiteer, not that I'm a Remainer. You don't know. But I'm just saying, we're not allowed to mention the tight labour market is because of Brexit, OK? No one should mention that the UK's inflation level is higher because of Brexit-type factors, OK? Nothing. Nothing to do with that. Just but want to makes, get that on the record. makes perfect sense, though, doesn't it? Not going to mention it, though. Uh, coming up on the show, Donald Trump. Well, guess what? Yes, he delivered a, well, quite a lambasting tirade against the Biden administration after he becomes the first former president to face federal charges. 
And elsewhere, we're going to cross live to Milan as Italy prepares to uh, farewell a former prime minister, a towering and controversial figure in the country's business and politics. Of course, Silvia Berlusconi. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Welcome back to Squawk Box, everybody. Thanks for staying with us. Well, former U.S. President Donald Trump, never a dull moment. He's pleaded not guilty to federal charges that he illegally stored classified documents at his Mar-a-Lago resort, setting the scene for a trial coinciding with his campaign to retake the presidency next year. Following the arraignment hearing in Miami, Trump took his defense directly to his supporters at an event in New Jersey, where he said he'd appoint a special prosecutor to go after Joe Biden if elected president. NBC's Alice Barr has this full report on Trump's historic federal indictment. Back on friendly ground after his day in federal court, former President Trump tonight defiant. Today we witness the most evil and heinous abuse of power in the history of our country. Earlier today in Miami, he pleaded not guilty to a 37-count indictment, alleging he stored highly classified national security documents haphazardly around Mar-a-Lago, showed them to people twice, and concealed them from investigators. The former president shifting attention to President Biden's ongoing classified documents investigation. Never before have the two standards of justice in our country been more starkly revealed. Republican lawmakers largely echoing that claim. Politically is seen as a double standard. Though legal analysts stress that unlike Mr. Biden, Mr. Trump is accused of obstructing efforts to get the documents back. Some Republicans are now voicing concerns from Capitol Hill. What President Trump did was wrong. I mean, it's clear as day. To the campaign trail. There are people in my own party who are blaming DOJ. How about blame him? He did it. The first federal indictment of a former U.S. president and 2024 GOP frontrunner now sending shockwaves through the race for the White House. The Trump event tonight was also a fundraiser and the campaign sent out fundraising blasts as he was heading in and out of the courtroom trying to turn the former president's legal peril to his political advantage. In Washington, Alice Barr, NBC News. Um, Italy will hold a national day of mourning to mark the death of Silvio Berlusconi as lawmakers and dignitaries pay their respects at a state funeral at Milan's Duomo Cathedral. Well, let's get to Claudia, who, of course, led our coverage on this yesterday here in London and is back in Milan now. Uh, Claudia, just I mean, this is an extraordinary speed of which Italy has organised this. I mean, this, an event of this scale. Just tell us a little bit more about what's going to be happening today. 
Yes, in fact, they have been very quick in organizing this very big uh, and demanding event because, of course, security is already cracking down here in Milan. Uh, many areas are cordoned off. It is expected that 20,000 mourners will show up today here in, uh, in front of the Duomo. As you can see behind me, also, these mega screens are being set up in order for everyone to be able to follow the ceremony from outside. Inside the cathedral, about 2,000 people will be uh, present. Uh, the list has not been made public for security reasons. We do know that Paolo Gentiloni is coming from the EU. Uh, of course, all of his party members, his coalition, the leaders of the coalition, uh, of course, the Prime Minister Giorgia Meloni, Matteo Salvini, the opposition as well, with all of the different parties present, present as well, uh, with Eli Schlein from the PD, uh, we, uh, you know, Matteo Renzi, Claudio Calenda, so uh, many political figures. But remember that this is not just a political uh, uh, moment. This is also all of the people that will gather that uh, are, were his friends. Berlusconi was uh, very uh, well loved by his friends. All of the world that comes from business and finance and media, as well as football, we do know uh, that also he, for many years, uh, owned the uh, football club AC Milan. Uh, from outside, also we are going. We are expecting that the Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban will be present, as well as the Qatari Emir Tamin bin Hamad. Now, of course, the big controversy of the latest hours that has been mounting is. This is a state funeral, yes, but also this has been uh, made a national day of mourning. Earlier when you were going into break, you could see that the flags were flying half-mast. And this, of course, once again is dividing Italy, as Berlusconi did when he was alive. He was able uh, to divide Italy. He's doing it again today now that this uh, decision has been made for the National Day of Mourning. Remember that he has been the object of allegations and indictments on tax fraud, on corruption, sexual uh, uh, scandals that have also swirled around his persona for many, many years. Uh, and while, again, the state funeral is, you know, understandable because it does respond to all of the criteria, the National Day of Mourning is a decision uh, that is, of course, because of all of his uh, allegations and, of course, the indictment, the actual he was found guilty on tax fraud and uh, was uh, able to avoid a prison sentence because he did uh, pay civil service. But uh, again, he was a man who was able to shape uh, his uh, these, you know, the, his, his political situation to his personal needs, according to many. He's been accused of using this political position uh, to benefit his businesses, to benefit his personal position, to, you know, to sort of to preserve his business empire. So uh, today, of course, that is uh, something that uh, is uh, really, uh, once again, very, very present. So with all of the years that he was in politics and uh, had many people uh, either uh, favoring him, so he either adoring him or loathing him, that is also uh, being felt here once again today. But there is no question that Silvio Berlusconi was a man who shaped Italian politics in his 30 years in politics. He shaped Italians and he shaped Italy. So today will, of course, be a very important day and we will be uh, reporting more later on as uh, the uh, Duomo uh, livens up already. It is uh, very much alive, uh, although it is very, very early. The funeral will be at 3 o'clock today. We still do not know where he will be taken afterwards. Uh, he uh, had a mausoleum built in his villa and it is believed that that is where he will be buried thank you for listening to squawk box europe express for more market moving news you can head to cnbc.com or join us again on the show with jeff cutmore steve sedgwick and karen show weekdays on cnbc